Hello and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. My name is Josh Tate, and with season one, we want to facilitate conversations on important topics that will encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Today, on our very first episode of season one, we felt it was important to talk and tell stories with Imam Mohammed Majid. He is the executive director of the Adams Center, and he's written for several online publications like the Washington Post and the Huffington Post, and even been profiled in Time Magazine and Wall Street Journal. Imam Majid's known for his multi-faith initiatives and commitment to public service and peacemaking. So today, we're going to share some stories, actually some never-before-told stories, of how Imam Majid and Pastor Bob crossed paths, their journey into bridge-building, religious freedom, and really just some astounding stories of impact that these two have made across the world. We have an exciting and impressive guest list for season one. So as you listen today, we would love for you to subscribe and download our podcast so you don't miss any of the incredible stories told here and even encourage you to share it with others and rate our podcast if you feel like it was impactful for you. It would really mean a lot to us. So thanks so much for doing so. Now, before we dive into this interview, I want to introduce you to the host of the Bold Love podcast, Dr. Bob Roberts Jr. Pastor Bob, Tell us a little bit about your friend, Imam Majid. I got to tell you that Majid is one of the best friends I have on the face of the earth. I love him. I love him as much as any man I've ever known. I love him as much as my neighbor. I love him as much as any Christian I know. And that's how Jesus loves. Yeah. Jesus had no conditions. Now, there's some stuff about Jesus I wish he'd listen to me about, but... <laughs> We're just going to have to be friends anyhow. I love him because he loves his family. His five daughters are incredible. Yeah. And his wife, she's a pretty smart lady too. And she keeps him in line. <laughs> I've seen it. I love him because he loves people. He does. I've watched him talk to destitute refugees, mm. discouraged Muslims confused Christians. He loves people. As a matter of fact, I know I'm a Christian and this may be hard for some of you to hear and understand, but he's one of the best pictures of what it looks like to love people like Jesus of anybody I've known. I'm not saying he's a Christian. He doesn't believe in the cross, wish he did, but he does believe in the life of Jesus and what Jesus taught and the love that he emulated. It's one of the greatest men I've ever known on the planet. Well, Bob, I will say that anytime that we get you and Imam Maja together, it seems that there's always laughter, there's always fun, and there's always some wisdom in there as well. So I couldn't be more excited about this interview today. So without further ado, check out our interview with Imam Mohammed Majid. Met him in Nepal, walking a bunch around a bunch of Hindu temples, looking at some crazy ancient cartoons on the edges of the buildings in Kathmandu, laughing and going, what were these people thinking? 
So a Christian who's conservative and a Muslim who's conservative, but we also realize that there are some real problems in the way we get along with our faith. And there's nobody like Majid who works with building bridges between the faiths. But you know, there's some terrible things that have been said about you and me, Majid. You know, I've, I've been accused of starting another religion. I've been accused of being a Muslim. I've been accused yeah. of not holding on to the tenets of my faith. And none of that's true. I just became friends with you. Yeah. That's your problem. <laughs> uh, you know, it's very interesting that um, God is the best planner. Um, who have thought, and an imam from Sudan grew up in a, a village in the north of Sudan that you cannot see it in Sudanese uh, map. Forget about the world map. It is not there. You cannot point to it. Uh, was born in that village on the bank of the, the, the Nile. Come to United States, uh, now more than three decades, would meet a pastor, Evangelical pastor, not from Washington, D.C., not from New York, not from California, the liberal places, from Texas. Amen. <laughs> the hard land. <laughs> Texas stand. Yeah, hard land. And then we have heart-to-heart -heart conversation. I think, Bob, that conversation you and I had in, in Nepal was amazing. Um, I remember that we said we would like to do something about, about the relationship between the Christian and Muslims in a real sense, rather than just going to conferences and white paper and discussions and those this kind of things. Well, hey, can I ask you something about that? Yeah. yeah. What prepared you for this kind of work? Let's go back to Sudan. I, I want to know about that. I mean, what, what's the story there? Uh, my mother passed away when I was four years old. Oh, okay. She passed away. Um, I have a youngest brother, who two years younger than me. And um, she, she, after a birth of a child, uh, you know, she passed away during that time. And the child did not survive also. But it's a, it is... A, it is that woman, I think, genes in me really made me really care about people. Your my mom. father. Yeah, my father used to tell me a lot about her. So do you, do you remember her? Do you have any memories? I, of I have, a, you know, very short memory because I was four years old. Um, but I remember that beautiful face, you know, of, of uh, um, loving and caring mother. But most of the stories about her, I heard from my father and my older sister, God bless her soul, and my, and my brother. Uh, but she was a very simple lady, very smart woman, but very compassionate. Her home was very, quite always open for guests. A very dedicated, smiling lady, uh, very patient, had perseverance in, in life. Uh, her life was... You know, they grew up in the village where there's no electricity, no running water, but they shared everything they have. They, they don't, the, their homes uh, stayed open the whole day, the whole village like that. The, the main door when you walk into the home is not locked. If you don't like the lunch in your home, <laughs> in the neighbor. So you cook it. <laughs> that is go, that from, go from house to house. Cell phone, 
there's no cell phone, there's no privacy in my space, you're the space. It was so accommodating. And that is the environment that I grew up in, of inclusive, openness, uh, you know, uh, you can walk in anyone's home and eat. And that really prepared me for this kind of work. The openness, the accessibility to people, being a people person. I see my, my father and my mother grow up in that environment. Uh, that really what made me who I am now today. I've heard you tell a story about your dad and uh, him teaching you how to serve people. When I was uh, serving actually the refugees uh, in, in Sudan, and uh, my father used to say that when you help people, you become a better human being. You're not doing them any favor. You cannot assume that you have uh, done favor to somebody because the best of you have come out. When you are loving, when you are caring, you become in touch with yourself. That discovering oneself is supposed to be the journey of every human being. It will shape all of us events in life. Um, uh, and, and he was telling me that when you become in contact with an orphan, you have to remember the orphan giving you uh, uh, access to mercy of God, the orphan. You are not being, you know, uh, 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 giving them any benefit, but you are benefiting from them because they're a better human being. You know, my, my father was, uh, was called the smile man. Always smiling. To the extent that people said to me, I, don't, I have not seen your father upset. Even when he has his pain, he has fever one of five. One of the nurses screamed in the Washington Hospital Center. He said, oh, your father fever so high. Why well, are you not saying anything? I said, I don't know. He's just resilient. Yeah, he was the Grand Mufti of Sudan. Yes, How he did was. that happen? Was he the imam in your local village? I'm just curious. How did... Um, my father graduated from the, the most prestigious uh, seminary. It's called Al-Azhar. Oh, he, I didn't know that. Yeah, my father was an Azhar graduate from Egypt. Wow. He's his uh, Islamic training from there. And he earned the highest degree of theology and Islamic law. Um, when he came to Sudan, uh, actually started working in a rural area, small villages. And he was, his work was um, very interesting because he would preach, but also he will uh, make sure that people have clothing, have running water, food. Like he, he was just doing it all. Um, and uh, very selfless. He would spend hours and hours walking sometimes or, you know, riding in very tough road uh, with very little means so that he can help those people. And that earned him respect among among the scholars in Sudan, he's a people person who will go to the villages and who take these big speakers and talk to them about morality, about loving thy neighbor, about being caring individuals. And he will go to places where maybe people have dispute and he become peacemaker between them. If the two tribes are fighting, he will you know, bring peace between them and creating like a council uh, peace council uh, on those places. Did when you was, go with him when he would do that? Yeah, uh, in two occasions I went with him. Did you um, ever get afraid or? 
No, he, no, because what, the way he goes, that the um, there's a legal aspect of of conflict and there's a spiritual aspect. He deals with spiritual aspect, not the legal aspect. But he's there to heal people. Healing. He was he come as a healer. Yeah, Majid, I think that's amazing and in how influential your dad was, especially in the work that you're doing around the world and bridge building now. Bob, I want to ask you a question. Who was influential for you during your childhood? My mom. I, I would say I was impacted more by my mom than anybody else. So by the time my mom and dad were 22, they had four kids. Wow. So you what do the math. Get they, my mom was 17. My dad was 18 when they got married, and they started pretty quick. That's so interesting. My, my mother was married when she was 17. Really? Yeah. So, so we, he had a lot of kids. My dad and mom, they were, they were poor. My father pastored little churches. He was from deep East Texas, and uh, that's our roots. And so there's a lot of prejudice in East, Te East Texas, racism and things like that. But I saw my mom as a little boy growing up uh, because my dad was a pastor. When people would be hungry, they'd go to the church. A lot of times my dad would send them to the parsonage. That's a house they built for the preacher to live in. And it was a small house. And I can remember my mom setting up tables and feeding poor people. And she would teach, treat them with such respect, Majid. I mean, these are people they hadn't bathed for days. They stopped. Wow. They were dirty, and yet she would talk to them with respect and kindness. But it's interesting watching my mom, how she would love people, serve people, teach us how to do that. Now, my dad, my dad taught me the Bible, and my dad taught me how to work. And so my dad was constantly in the community, uh, serving people, preaching, doing the things that a pastor did. So so I would see that. In East Texas, uh, we don't understand in America the term tribes. But the truth of the matter is East Texas has all these villages. I call them small towns. But you would understand, Magic, they're really villages. Moving from one village to the next was very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I would see my parents serve, but I would see them also move to a different village. And so my brothers and sisters never really felt accepted in those villages. So we would have to learn to break into the school. And so that's what forced me to become friends with anybody and everybody. But we were still in all of those villages. Uh, we didn't treat African-Americans right. We didn't think about them right. And we definitely didn't think about the world. The world for us was something we sent people who wanted to live overseas to evangelize other people. We didn't know other cultures, didn't respect other cultures, didn't care about other cultures. We just wanted people to become Christians. And so there was, as a Christian, that may sound good in one way, but the reality is the way we did it showed a massive disrespect for other people. But you went to the whole white school. There's no uh, people of did. We did, but incredible story. When I was in the second grade is when they desegregated. Mm. So there was a little boy from the orphanage who was African-American. So he was put in my classroom. But in mm. the second grade, they put him next to the guy alphabetically. 
and his parents threw a fit. So she put him three places and each parent got really upset. So mm. finally, finally, uh, the principal called my mom and, and said, look, would you be willing, I know your husband is a pastor, would you be willing to let this black boy sit by Bobby Jean? That's my name, Maj. Wow. Everybody call me Bobby Jean. So my mom said, of course. Well, to me, it wasn't something bad. I was in the second grade. I was going to get to sit by the black kid. All right. <laughs> I ran that kid crazy. I feel sorry for him. <laughs> Looking back. I mean, imagine. Okay, don't get mad I at can, me. I can imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> we would get in trouble because we'd start laughing. I mean, there was all kind of crazy stuff that we did. Uh, so it was a journey for me too, Majid. How do you yeah. love other people? How do you respect them? You know, it's, it's very interesting that, um, first of all, I still, you know, sometimes I think about it, that uh, you and I having this conversation and each one of us can look back and to see what are kind of events really in our childhood, in our youth, really shaped us. Yeah. And what are the things that we were resisting in our heart, but you couldn't maybe verbalize it, we're resisting in our heart that now we can talk about freely, you know, openly and those kind of things. Because sometimes you might, you might have questions, you know, in your journey and to say, what this is all about, you know, why this conflict is still taking place and so forth and so on. But when you become now an imam, become a pastor, now you, you have influence. Then you can say, okay, now I have influence. What can I do with this influence? You know, it's very interesting that um, that sometimes we don't know even what we say, how many people that may pack those people. Even a, just a sermon, uh, you might either go south or go north. <laughs> <laughs> you have bad sermons, Majid? Well, no, no, I'm saying to you that I become more aware. Like, for example, you might say something that, and you don't realize that people sitting before you it triggered them. You may say something that triggers somebody. The access to, to people and speaking to them is very powerful. And that's why, I, I, you know, when I was in your church and um, I heard you uh, preaching and I saw how people reacted to you. People really engaged with you and people express, you know, this um, uh, connection with you. I, I think because as you were talking to them, you, you make it real. You're talking to them, you know, uh, you know, in the way that you can, you can relate and connect with them. And, and having you and at the stage to ask me to take off my shoes, <laughs> you know, crazy, crazy. I said, what this guy is going to do to me? Try to baptize me, was that, was that annoying? Take off your shoes, magic, take your shoes. And then here is this like Texan nice, fancy boots. I really still have them. Uh, enjoy them very much, but that is itself like there's one thing to preach, the other thing to demonstrate something to people by building relationship. I like really I thought about that moment that when you asked me to, and give me the shoes, I know that intentionally you want to convey something also to me and to the audience that you love me, and you want to teach them love in action. That is a bigger than that's a speak louder than words. 
for you know, me, very creative. There's something about the response, uh, and it's what you're talking about, the responsibility of a cleric, of a pastor, imam, a rabbi, a priest, to challenge people. Mm. I mean, to influence them to righteousness, to goodness. And I think God has to change our heart. I remember I was uh, maybe 31 years of age, and I'd preached about three times on a Sunday morning, and it was Sunday afternoon, and I was exhausted. And I came home, and I was laying on the couch, and the TV was on. And I woke up, and the, it was on PBS. And it was, uh, it was uh, the Civil Rights Series, I Own the Prize. And so mm, I'm waking up, that. and I'm watching that. And I'm seeing, you know, it shows Bull Connor, you know, and he's there with the dogs, and it shows these African-American people being beaten, men and women and children and the dogs after him. And I thought, man, that was horrible. I was thinking that was back in the 60s. And I'm watching this, and I'm going, that's sad. That was so wrong. And I thought, how could they do that? And I began to think, you know, they're Southerners. I thought, man, I'm a Southerner. I thought, boy, we had that wrong. And then I began to think about how religious the South was. Hmm. And I thought, how could religious people be out yeah. beating people because they're black and they want civil rights? Hmm. And then, Majid, I had an epiphany. It hit hmm. me. Those religious people that are beating the black people most of them are Southern Baptist, just mm. like me. And I thought, mm. oh my gosh, mm. what am I a part of? Mm. Why did we do that? And all of a sudden it hit me. There weren't any racial issues. This was in the early 90s. Mm. But what hit me was, this is wrong. Mm. And I need, to, I need to be more engaged and to speak out against. And so the pulpit, all of a sudden it hit me. How, how do I respond to that? How do I keep pushing us forward in how we see other people? But I'd heard this very famous pastor, our church was growing and I started speaking at all these famous events. I won't tell you who, but you've seen the guy on TV mm -hmm. and he taught us, he said, whatever you do, don't speak about anything that's controversial. Because if you want your church to keep growing, you start talking about race or anything else, you'll mess it up. Mm. And I listened to him, Magic, and guess what? He was wrong. And I bought a lie. Because I, I think the responsibility that we have to change cultures, I think is big, Magic. I mean, it's like it's easy to preach. You sinners, you shouldn't be sleeping around, getting drunk, or, or any of that stuff. That's easy. You know, you need to clean your life up. Be a better person. But I think there's another level of, of preaching and leadership that says, man, this is what, what it's like to live in a just society. You know, I, I really like what you're saying. When I teach, I tell people there's two aspects of religion, inward and outward. Inward, it is where the change of the heart takes place. And it's very easy to, uh, to do outward religion. You know, show up in the mosque or show up in the church and you're thinking, uh, you know, reading the Quran or singing hallelujah. It's easy to do that. <laughs> that is the easy, that outward religion. The inward religion, when you clean your heart from envies, from hatred, 
from jealousy, from prejudice. That's the most difficult aspect of religion. Because other, other aspect of faith is just, you know, entertaining yourself, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and just feeling good. Uh, sometimes you don't even have a, you know, get the guilt out, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I want to, I check the box. I went to the church, I went to the mosque. But, you know, um, one of the things my grandfather used to say, uh, that, oh, that's amazing, man. I, you know. Uh, he was, was a tribal was, leader, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was highly respected in our village. He was, had this charisma, a very charismatic man. Um, he used to say to me that, you know, you can work the, the biggest turban in the world and the biggest robe in the world and have the longest beard in the world does not make you religious. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes you have this image of clergy, a big turban, long beard and so forth from the, from the Muslim community. And he said, until and unless you clean that heart every night from hate of any human being, from any prejudice, from any jealousy, from any, any envy, grudge. He said, if you, if you do that, then you can tell to God, now I'm connected with you. He said that, um, he said to me that if you are able to sleep every night with a light heart, you become a spiritual person. Wow. That's what he said to me. But therefore, I find it to be very interesting what you're saying that very confusing religious people like myself, I see uh, you know, people claim to be Muslims advocating for attacking Christians or, at, uh, you know, or committing terrorism. It is troubling to me. You know, this is really like, when people talk about blasphemy, <laughs> that's a blasphemy. Yeah. You know, that is really- Good, Majid. This is cult. You know, it is just troubling to me. Before the same thing that you have seen what happened in the South, I've seen now in some places that how can you be a, a true Muslim, you allow a church to be demolished? Yeah. How can yeah. be a true Muslim, you chasing out Christian from your land? It's just contradictory. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Majid. I think one question I want to ask, which most listeners, I think, are interested in hearing as well is... The story of how you two met, an evangelical pastor, an imam. Tell us that story about the first time you guys met. Yeah, yeah, we, we met in Nepal. I remember that in, in the mountain of Nepal. And I remember that my my uh, hotel room was not that great. I don't know how it was. <laughs> Mom was good. They, they, they treated the Christians really good. Uh, or, the, or the white people. They treated white people That's it. That, it's true. Yes, and yeah, God, God bless you. Uh, I learned my lesson on that one. <laughs> yeah, but I think yeah, we met in Nepal with with the group of uh, Muslims from Pakistan and Christians, and the Muslims have Sunni and Shia, and because there's tension between Shia and Sunni and between um, the uh, the Muslims and the Christians, we're there to try to facilitate a dialogue and understanding between them. And, and some of those and, Muslims weren't real nice. Yeah, they, they had the history of, of, you know, really generating conf some conflict there. Were you nervous about being with them? No, I, no, I, I think I, 
uh, as long as I'm in neutral land, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but that that was an interesting meeting, uh, and I really learned a lot about about how people can, you know, establish relationship in a difficult time. But you and I was said like we need to take it to the next level. We need to have some more boring, time. Just just, be, just say it. It was boring. I mean, you remember what they were doing? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, Don't I'm tell not me it wasn't. You were sleeping half the time. My friendship with those people. I was kicking. I was kicking you under the table, trying to keep you awake. Oh come on! <laughs> because maybe my my room was too cold at night. I don't have. A <laughs> <laughs> but but it was very interesting that really uh, that you and I figured out or we thought about it that how can we make a sustainable relationship. Build it slowly, and instead of a more relationship, relationship based rather than um, lecture based, and that was that was led to the first meeting of imams and pastors in Texas. Remember that when yeah. we came back, uh, you know, I uh, facilitated flying the imam, while some pastors have more money than one pastor may have money, more, more money than all the mosque. <laughs> <laughs> some of your pastors have private jet. Remember that. I know. But uh, it was amazing experience. The fact that you made it, Bob, you made it fun, and you made it around building relationship, about horseback riding. The only thing that made me nervous, to be honest with you, the shooting thing. It was fun. No, no, it, it looked like a setup. Dude, For you're the, in Texas. No, no, no. How did the imam after 9-11 bring the imam in Texas? And have them to shooting, and you want to take a picture <laughs> of shooting? I said, no, no picture for Imam. Because they were entrapment, entrapping them. You know, um, but that that's really where, where the change have taken place. And I established great friendship with those you know, what's, what, what was crazy is uh, I'd gradually become friends with Muslims because of my work in Afghanistan and my work around the world. But I had never really done that much with Muslims in the U.S., and uh, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal of Saudi Arabia is a friend, and he challenged me. He said, Bob, it's great what you do with Muslims around the world, but what about the U.S.? And I said, Your Highness, I live in Dallas. Me working with Muslims in Dallas would be like you starting a Baptist church in Mecca. It wouldn't go <laughs> over real big. He started laughing. He said, yeah, but that's why you ought to do it. So, so that, you know, we picked the 12 cities. And I remember some of the pastors were very nervous about coming. I mean, they would not tell anyone. That still happens. Many times when we, when we do our retreats today, pastors will say nothing until after it's over. And then they've shifted their whole mindset about how they see things. Hey, I want to but, ask but, you. But, 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 but Bob, you're telling me always about the theology of, of uh, loving thy neighbor and those kind of things. What do you think that, what, what the challenges that we have in this issue that uh, people who preach on Sunday, loving thy neighbor and so forth, will have this kind of fear of the neighbor. It, it, it's just troubling to me. It's the same thing about imams. Like, how comes people are not really uh, challenging their interpretation of their theology by taking the courageous steps and being vulnerable and open up and reaching out to people? That's the silly. I think it's easier to preach it than it is to live it, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for, for example, racism, 
it, it's great to say love your neighbor and red, yellow, black, and white, Jesus loves the little children of the world. But when we intentionally desegregated our church, that was something people could see. And it created headache. Great, Bob's working with Muslims around the world. But now we've got an imam. The most prominent imam in America is speaking at our church on Sunday. Has Bob lost his mind? Mm. He let him get up there and explain what Muslims believe. I don't, I think preaching is more than the words. It's the picture. It's the picture and how they see us living our lives. You know, Majid, I've seen this with you. Pastors are blown away when they meet you. They go, my gosh, that, that's an imam? Because you smile. You're like your dad. You're always grinning. You're always smiling. You're always having fun, you know? And when they see that, they go, wow. Hey, by the way, we were in Uzbekistan. Some of those pastors... Their church has just been registered. It's a national. Hey, you told me that. I really, really am excited about this. And that's because of Muslims. And so what happens when we build relationships with one another? Majid, have I ever told you about Jesus? Of course you did. Do, do, you, have you, any, do you have any doubt in your mind that I would love to baptize you? Man, I do. I mean, I, 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 would, good, I would. Good luck with that. Yeah, I know. But my point is. I've not compromised my faith, but yeah. I've said my faith is bigger than loving somebody that's just in my faith. Is my faith big enough? Here's another way we say it as Christian. Is Jesus big enough inside of me to love somebody outside my tribe? And, yeah. and I, I think that model has to be there. And you've done that to me. And so, you know, we were called the Muslim church. And I remember a staff member coming in one day, all upset. We've got to stop all this Muslim stuff. They're calling us the Muslim church. It's hurting us. You, you've been criticized. I mean, you've... Yeah. There, there, there's, something, there's something called moral imperative. And there's something called moral expediencies. Expediencies meaning that convenient moral. You know, that you have to be um, consistent. Even in the most difficult time, to make the right decision, even if it's upset some people, but eventually those people are gonna come around. The question is this, what is the history of religion? How many people cheer and clap for Jesus when he started teaching in the beginning? Not many. Not many people, you know? People, people become his enemy, there's some people who don't like him. The same thing with Prophet Muhammad, the same thing with Moses. Therefore, religion is not about having everyone sing Kumbaya. <laughs> it's sometimes you have to challenge the status quo. You have to teach morality. You have to stand for what is right. Uh, conveniency, uh, it is not the teaching that of, the, of Jesus, of Moses, of Muhammad. How do you handle the criticism? I mean, you've been, I mean, I, I tell pastors all the time, you know, Google me, but if you got a question, ask me, because I don't even respond to all the criticism anymore. What, what about you, Majid? How uh, what, what, what keep me going with all criticism that I hear, it's very interesting that sometimes you get criticism from the Muslim community. They think that you are too much into this interfaith and government relations. And sometimes you hear from the right wing, your tribe, calling me all kind of uh, names. For you hear all of those kind of things, but what keep you go, what keep me going 
when I read my scripture, Holy Quran, and I read about the challenges that people before us have faced, some of them the best of the best, closer to God than anyone else can imagine. And you say, if this is the path I'm taking, and I'll be true about it, then I have to expect hardship. I have to expect criticism. I have to expect that people are going to call me names and so forth. Have people called Jesus' name? Yeah. They did. Have people called Muhammad names? All all of them. They called the righteous people being called names. Therefore, it is very important for all of us to, to, to say what we stand for. Who, how can I identify myself? Who am I? What is my moral compass? What is my moral reference? What is my frame of reference of morality? That is what, what I need to think about. And then, then I'm going to say, I'm going to be a friend of Bob. I'm going to be friend with Jewish uh, leaders. I'm going to be friend with everybody. We can find a common ground in this beautiful country of the United States. Allow an immigrant like myself to have a chance to flourish, have relationship, have family, have be able to practice his religion. But you know, Bob, the reason that I advocate for Christians around the world, in the Muslim community, to be protected is a matter of principle, not politics. Yeah. I believe my religion is saying that. I will become closer to God by protecting the Christians. Yeah in Muslim country, but also is a matter of gratitude. I'm here, the majority, with all the trouble of Islamophobia, negative things, is still, I live in a country that is uh, uh, freedom, freedom of religion being granted by the Constitution. I can fight for my rights through the law, and I have to do the same for every Christian religious minorities in the majority of Muslim countries. That's why we started this whole thing of the Marxist Declaration of Sheikh Bambaya. Therefore, this is, the, this is my principle on, into this issue. You know, Majid, I have, uh, I, have a, I have a dream and a desire and a hope, and it's this, that, uh, you, you know, I start a lot of churches here in the U.S., and I train young pastors. But, oh, yeah. I, but I dream of every young pastor that I train having an imam that they're as close to as I am to you. That, that's my dream. Because when that happens, Majid, then fear will go down. When that happens, then we can work together to build a society for everybody, not just people like that happens. When that happens, we can even have better conversations about our faith. I mean, think about it, Majid. So many pastors and imams, when we get them together, they really can't talk. This is what our faith teaches. They are so busy saying, no, we don't believe that. No, we don't believe that. I mean, on both sides, you hear that. Why? Yeah. Because Muslims, some imams have built this narrative that all the Christians are horrible. Some of the pastors have built a narrative that Muslims are horrible and they're evil and demonic. That's tragic. And it's even not biblical. Even if I disagree with faith, you disagree with my faith. We're both created in the image of God. We're sacred from God. Life is sacred. We can't do that. Yeah, it's very interesting that we see now it's multi-faith neighborhood that you and I established, co-founded, and you see the impact of it in many people's life. And I, I'm so happy that to go through this journey with you 
that we now we see the change shift happening from city to city where the imams and pastors becoming really friends, close friends, uh, establish this relationship where they can call one another if something happened in their community. We have uh, pastors who come and uh, stood with the Muslims when the, the mosque was surrounded by uh, extremist group. And, and you have this kind of uh, development happening in America uh, because of relationship. That's why I'm excited about this journey of touring America. Every single city that we need to have this friendship between imam and pastor and a rabbi. I've loved it, Majid. I love going around the world with you. I love watching you eat horse and monkey and other animals. It's, it's I, hey, 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 hey. For the record, <laughs> I did not eat horse. I did not eat monkey. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you ate the horse. I don't know what your religion says. Actually, I feel shame that, uh, you know, that you ate horses and you're from Texas. You're oh, supposed to be prohibited. It's good. Like, it's supposed to be like prohibited for all the Christian oh, Texas. Listen, it's, it's just like chicken. It's just like chicken. No, but don't you see horses in Texas? Don't you feel bad? Yeah, but that, I was eating ugly horse, a fat ugly horse. A cowboy. Yeah, they, they were fat ugly horses. So bad, so, for, so bad for, <laughs> you know, you betrayed your horses. Hey, I have, I have a quick question. Yes. So you talk about Multi-Faith Neighbors Network. Uh, what is your hope for the future and the work that you're doing together? Well, that's a very good question. I think my, my hope uh, is just what you just said earlier, that every imam and every pastor get to know one another. And we transform, uh, transfer, uh, transform communities. My hope is that, you know what, the, Dr. King has his dream. And it's still his dream not being completely uh, uh, realized, but we should have a dream as well. Our dream is to stand with one another in building community that compassionate, loving, and caring community. My dream is that my children will have no fear growing up in America and their grand my grandchildren will have a society where they will don't hear an imam or a pastor or a rabbi preach hate. That's my dream. And in order to do that, we have to get into building true, genuine relationships. So I would agree with that dream. I'm on, I'm on board for that. I would just like to see it modeled in America and spread out to the ends of the earth. That, that's my dream. Living big, brother. Which is I mean, good. we're already seeing it in some countries. I want to see it all over the world with all religions. That's my dream. Thank you for your dream, brother. Yeah. So for, for our listeners, what would you say is a first step in faith and action in the public square and getting involved, whether they're an evangelical Christian or a Muslim? What would be their first step? Ignorance is the biggest source of fear. By knowing someone will eliminate or reduce the fear and the unknown. And to do that, you have to take the steps of being vulnerable, expose yourself to other people's culture, other people's religion, and that does not mean to water down your own religion. It will affirm your faith because you have to do it from your faith perspective. You do it because you're Muslim. You do it because you are Christian. 
And that's really what we want to see happening. One of the things Majid and I have learned, what changed pastors and imams, it's not information. It's relationships. It's transformation, yeah. And so everybody can build a relationship with someone that's different. They can say, hey, let's eat together in the cafeteria today. Let's go mm -hmm. grab a bite of lunch together. Mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's talk. We're going to go out. Let's take our families to the park together. Because at the end of the day, that's the goal. I mean, yeah. the goal, Josh, is to get people connected. Because once you get to know someone, it changes you forever. Absolutely. Amen. Majid, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we, got a, we got a long journey ahead of us, but we're going to make it. And, and you know, Majid, it's going to be tough. People are going to give us a hard time. But, dude, we're going to have some fun in the meantime. We can't stop the haters, but we can eat all the bluebell ice cream we want. And we're going to do it, man. Thank you so much, Bob. We shall overcome, as they have been said. And we walk together in this walk, this path of peace and building harmonious society. God Amen. bless you. Thank you so much for joining us on this storytelling journey with Bob Roberts Jr. We are honored that you would listen and we hope that you were impacted by the conversation. If so, we would love for you to download and subscribe to the podcast and share with others on social media. For more information on the podcast, show notes, or any references, you can go to bobrobertsjr.com, click podcast, and you can get all the information there. Thanks again for joining us, and remember at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you to live out your faith boldly, better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Have a great day.